0: So I am here with Dr. Joseph Tennant. Hi, Joe. Hi. Are uh, we are at the Faraday Institute, and welcome to the first of our series of Get to Know the Researcher. And it's we're going to have a look at what it's like to be a social scientist and look at your week, Joe. So first of all, Joe is uh, working on a project about mystical seizures and salience in temporal lobe epilepsy. It's a bit of a mouthful, <laughs> but you will find out a bit more about the project at the link at the end of this. But before we start... What
1: is a social scientist? Then, do you know? So, a social scientist is a very broadly a researcher that cares about things humans do.
0: Okay.
1: Um, and that can range from someone like me, a social psychologist, social cultural psychologist, to someone sort of broad scale, like a sociologist looking at structures and governments and businesses, that kind of thing, or an anthropologist looking at sort of minute cultural behaviors between peoples, or something as is as, as weird as a industrial organizational psychologist who. Spends all their time looking at how we make businesses more efficient from the person side of behavior, and um, and you are
0: actually, as you say, research psychologist. Is that correct? That
1: is correct. Yeah. So I focus on psychology of religion and um, morality as my mm-hmm. other sort of area of expertise. Um, so for religious experiences is the recent subject. It's what brought me to the, the mystical seizures project. Um, it, it It's always been a very interesting and hard-to-study subject. Mm-hmm. Religious experience is clearly very important to those who have it. It can shape and define their lives. It's one of the most powerful motivators in probably humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have a great grasp of what it's like, at least not from a psychological perspective, what contributes to who has and who doesn't, um, or sort of what it does. I mean, we sort of know generally what it does. We don't have a great specific understanding.
0: So what is a religious experience? We've got a definition for your research. <laughs> uh, there's
1: about a thousand different definitions. We're, look- we're looking with uh, the, uh, the categories of mysticism laid out by the philosopher uh, W.T. Stace, which includes things like a sense of timelessness or a, a paradoxality or a sense of uh, sudden knowing about the universe, a loss of the self. Uh, these are sort of unusual mystical experiences. But a religious experience is... Hard to pin down in part because it varies by community. The things that count in different cultures are all valid within that culture, but not necessarily easy to, to talk about across cultures. For example, in Christianity, very typically people report things like, I wish to experience be something hearing the voice of God, is a sort of classic one. But also, having thoughts that are sudden and surprising that you didn't expect can often be attributed to God. And people will say, I, I had this sudden idea of moving to a place, and I know that's God telling me what this answer to my question was. So it really depends, Um, and I think that's why the cultural uh, psychological approach is really helpful for studying religion, because you can learn what people treat as important, and then translate that into a better understanding of what they're doing.
0: And your project specifically is looking at how a large sample of people with epilepsy Mm -hmm. might encounter or explain (laughs) their epilepsy as a as a religious experience.
1: uh, somewhat. Yeah. So it's, some of them do, some of them don't. Um, so we're looking at people who have epilepsy, uh, for the most part, we're we're believing it'll be temporal lobe epilepsy who have what are known as, um, focal or partial seizures. So they'll have, the, the seizure will begin and rather than the sort of very typical, uh, tonic-clonic shaking and jerking and unconsciousness that people generally associate with epilepsy, it'll be something much more subtle. It'll be a sensation of a very common one is deja vu, like very strong mm-hmm. and sudden deja vu. And then maybe you'll see something like lip smacking, you might see some twisting of the arms or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, in very rare cases, which are the ones we're interested in, uh, you will see people who are reporting intense euphoria or bliss. Uh, they'll report a sudden understanding of the scope of the universe, as one person described it to me. Um, in the case of uh, uh, Fodor Dostoevsky, I can never say his name right, I'm terrible with Russian names. Um, he, uh, he, he would report just that in, uh, being transported to heaven and he would scream out, God is real, I see it, God is real, and then fall unconscious. Um, so we're looking at those very unusual and very rare experiences.
0: So take me through how a how project research of this works. Um, I know that you're sometimes in the office here, you're mm-hmm. sometimes at Adleritz, you're sometimes at UCL. So, mm-hmm. so where how are you getting your samples and what are you doing? Sure.
1: So we're looking at uh, two methods of recruitment, mm-hmm. um, sort of sneaky three. So the two, mm-hmm. is, uh, the primary method is going to be uh, at the UCL. Um, so we are collaborating with uh, Dr. Sabir Erickson over there. She's been very wonderful in getting us access to uh a database. So essentially, UCL has a, a neurosurgery meeting every Thursday where they talk about three or four patients and they get people from every discipline, psychiatry, psychology, all, all the MRI teams, EEG teams, the clinicians, the surgeons, all in a room, talk about a case and see whether that person is a suitable candidate for surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, yes or no, the answer is interesting for the person's health. Um, but these reports have been going on for a long time. And they contain very comprehensive data about a person's experiences as well as all the physiological sites of interest. And so that's potentially some of the most complete data you'll ever find uh, in regards to the epilepsy population. And And
0: this and UCL is the national hospital,
1: isn't it? It is the national hospital for, I believe, neurology generally, but definitely for epilepsy. Um, And so one of the benefits is it sees people from all over the United Kingdom. We've had people as far as Edinburgh, even farther in some cases, come down for consultations in part because... Their surgical ward is top notch. Um, so that, that's our main uh, recruitment. I'm there twice a week. Um, so
0: you get on the train or yes. you go to London. Correct. How long do you, you get, get up early
1: and off you go? So, I definitely get up on early on Wednesdays. Um, so, the other way we're recruiting patients is we are administering a pre screening epilepsy clinics. Mm-hmm. So, people come in for their consultations and we ask them to fill out just a little one page form in addition to all the other documents they get um, as part of their check in. Not everyone does it. A response rate is about 15 20% depending, um, and that's pretty normal. Um, mm-hmm. People typically don't want to fill out another form when they already have five or six to do. Um, but we're administering that at Adderbrooks and at UCL. Um, and so at the UCL, I typically get to get in around 8.30 um, from Cambridge to London. Uh, so I can um, get all the forms set up ahead of time because they've run a pretty tight ship. They have a lot of clinics going on simultaneously. Um, and I also have to check with all the consultants who have agreed to let us be at these clinics to make sure that there's no patients that might be bad candidates. So for example, from the date, we try to minimize the amount of Pre-looking, we do. I don't want to dig into people's medical records without, without a good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we ask clinicians, for example, if someone is learning disabled, we don't want to give them a survey. We don't want to harass them. Um, someone's under 16 is another good example. So uh, clinicians will check off the one or two people that are bad fits, and then we'll make sure to not give them one. and Make sure all the rest of them are lined up and ready to roll. So let's get there pretty early for that.
0: So, are you sitting in on consultations, or are you just looking at the the data
1: that they I am just looking at the data. Um, It's it's the least intrusive way to do it, and our pre-screen is actually has the option to be anonymous. So, it it serves two purposes. One is to get a sense of what the baseline epilepsy population looks like in regard to things like unusual experiences, religiosity. Um, But also for people who are interested in the study, it gives them a way to sort of non-intrusively feel the study out. (laughs)
0: So out of interest, you know, so I go and see a neurologist, for example. I'm sure. experiencing an epilepsy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just wondering whether or when, unless it's a direct question, I would want to re- reveal. <laughs> that um an actual fact so i know i might be having an epileptic seizure but i think this is a religious experience yeah. how does this data
1: get collected <laughs> yeah so that that's one of the tricky ones is you'll have cases where clinicians like what's us back up clinicians really care about outcomes they care yeah. about number of seizures per week they care about number of seizures per day they care about seizure freedom medicine levels i mean this is really important stuff and that's their primary focus is the health oh. of, their, of their patients so if you're if they're asking about auras for example and you Experiences, they're doing so to obtain a diagnosis. They're looking mm-hmm. for localization patterns. And so you might get a line or two in a clinician report reports unusual experience, reports odd psychic aura. Um, and so those are the little clues that we have to go on and then follow up and ask about it more. And the clinician might remember one story once. And so then we have to go see if the patient's willing to talk to us more about it. We have a lot of dead ends, actually, which is fine. That's part of the process. Because
0: people might not want to admit it as well. I'm just thinking, I'm not sure. You know, mm. Some people might think, oh, well, I saw God, <laughs> but do I really want to tell anyone about this? Yeah. Or...
1: Well, and that's why we wanted to have the option to be anonymous on the survey, is not everyone is going to be eager to talk to us. And even if we can't get them the full study, having someone reporting that they had an unusual experience, uh, despite not being religious at all, is of interest. Just having that in the population numbers is good to know.
0: Okay, so they are the two ways, and you said there's a yeah. nifty third way of
1: getting. Oh, the nifty third way is if someone comes into clinic and one of the clinicians who knows we're doing the study says, "Oh, someone told me something strange happened. You should go ask them." Okay. Uh, that that's sort of because people are see our forms and aware of our project. Um, we, we've gotten a, one or two referrals of people saying, "Definitely check this person out."
0: So why is your project so interesting if this data is already here no one's done a thing with it why, why why is it interesting for you to be doing it
1: uh, well, there's there's two reasons. So the, the previous research on this, there is some previous research, but the largest study has a sample size of 11 people, and it's a case study. Mm-hmm. So it's, people just, it's clinicians describing 11 patients normally over a couple-year period. Okay. Um, we are aiming to have 50 participants, uh, making it easily, even if we only get 30, we're still the largest study on this subject ever mm-hmm. conducted. So that in and of itself is very exciting. Um, we're also being much more systematic, which isn't meant to be a dig at any of these other studies. It's just case reports have been traditionally used because it's a very rare phenomenon and so the 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 ability for us to hire me on full-time to only look at this kind of research is just new Mm -hmm. Um, and so we'll be able to apply a much more dedicated rigor to it because we actually have a full dedicated research project to the study rather than it being a a side note of of normal clinical practice. Um, In terms of interest to me, uh, this goes right to the religious experience question. These are cases in which people are having religious experiences, and it's not necessarily because they're entrenched in a religious community and trying to have these kind of experiences, but rather are just suddenly finding themselves transported to heaven. And that, I have to imagine, has a powerful psychological impact on the person who has them. And it, we know that it is much more due to the epilepsy, or at least is, is highly correlated with the epilepsy. And so it serves as a natural experiment on religious experience, um, and one that I don't think there's many other avenues to, to get at. It's the closest we get to assigning someone a religious experience. You
0: talked about a project in Japan... Which is also quite big.
1: How are you different to this? Yeah, so they, uh, they administered surveys uh, to about 250 participants um, looking for something like this. And they got responses from about three who reported the unusual experience. And they did a traditional case study on them, asked them about the, what those experiences were like. And they reported some medical data. Uh, so we're different in that we're looking for a lot of covariates. Um, when, when we're finding these people, we're not just doing a quick interview and a recap of their medical history. We will be doing those two things. We'll be doing 45-minute um, to an hour-long interviews, we, I mean me, um, mm. about what the experiences is, what it's done for their lives, how frequent it is, how valuable they are to them. actually looking at psychological questions in the interview. As well as giving them a standardized questionnaire which i don't think has ever been done no Mm -hmm. one's ever given the it's a brief multi-dimensional religious index i don't think that's ever been given out to uh uh, this population before Uh, certainly not in the numbers that we're, we're planning to do it so we'll actually have a measure we can compare to the general population to look for differences and actually be able to assess differences in certain psychological variables we also have a number of other scales we're giving out so i mean we really have the advantage of being the first study to treat this question as a question in and of itself, rather as a as sort of a side question to, to normal clinical practice. And that's very exciting.
0: So it's very exciting as well in the last month because you've been with the Faraday, I want to say a year? But it, a little over, yeah. Yeah, and um, it's taken you this long to get your ethics and all this done. And so yes. now, Mm-mm. your general week includes you coming here, mm-hmm. going to UCL, mm-hmm. going to Hamburgs, looking mm-hmm. at lots of data. Yeah. And then you'll be interviewing people
1: yeah very soon um actually we're we had our first round of pre-screen interviews which is uh, people who identify themselves as potential candidates we actually give them a call up and talk through it a little bit and see where they might fit in our study and how willing they are to do things and whether that be a good fit. So we have a couple of exclusion criteria that we're not going to ask directly on a pre-screen. For example, people who have had bouts of post postictal psychosis, um, people who after seizure will have periods of mania or delusions of grandeur, um, that, that's not a great fit for our study. We're not interested necessarily in people who sort of suddenly think they're Jesus because they've had a, a pretty bad bout of seizures. I mean, that's that's a psychiatric issue. We're looking for experiences that aren't. Uh, I don't want to say tainted, but aren't, aren't highly related with uh, ongoing medical conditions in that way. Um, so we, we did a couple of those interviews uh, on Friday and actually had a, found a participant for each of our cohorts, which is exciting. kind to fill those numbers up. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, we're finally really up and running after a, a, a lengthy uh, ethics process.
0: So as a social scientist, you're busy, you're not uh, always in the office, you're not always in the lab, you're at a hospital, you're looking mm-hmm. at data, and then you're talking to people. Yeah. You enjoy your job, Jay?
1: I do enjoy my job. It's very rewarding. Um, I, I mean, as you can tell from my accent, I moved here for this kind of work. Yeah. Um, it's a very unique project. And, I mean, I think a lot of social scientists will echo this sentiment. We're here because we really like getting data. We Mm -hmm. like not just asking questions and answering them in sort of philosophical treatises. I mean, that's that's part of it. It's important. But really getting our hands on what's actually going on and being able to observe it and to report it and to make it... Accessible to other people and potentially replicatable. That that's really for me very exciting. When that first bit of pre-screen data trickles in, and you see, actually this happened last week. Someone had written that they had had several unusual experiences, and circled it and wrote only during seizure that's exactly the kind of thing we're waiting a year to see. And it's really exciting to have some of the things you think should be there show up in the real world. And for you to say, it's not just me making things up, but this is the way reality works. That, I think, is, for most of the scientists, sort of the thrill of it all.
0: Well, thank you for sharing this, Um, Jo. You've got about another year, I think, on your project. So watch this space, because you'll find out whether... This, I think it's important but what you found out and, yeah. uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today it's been
1: great talking to you too